having this man with us, the gift of God in this man is extraordinary. You're going to be ministered to. We're starting a series. We'll be in it for the month of June called Legacy. And so Mondua is going to kick this series off with us. Is that okay? You guys ready? All right, Mondua, we'll invite you up. Give you, put your hands together if you could. Yes, sir. Let's just um, extend our hands. In a, I'm sure he's going to pray again, but let's pray for him. And let's pray for ourselves. You know, it's, it's one thing that we, uh, you know, receive from a man, but it's another thing to be open to receive. And you've got you to open your heart to receive when God brings anybody or puts anybody behind the pulpit. Amen? So let's just pray that our hearts, I think more so for our hearts, to receive the gift of God and the word of God this morning. Father, we thank you for our friend. We thank you for this father, uh, this example Lord, that we have as young people, Lord, to glean from, to be encouraged from, and be strengthened from. God, we ask, Lord, that his gift would be fully released in this place, that our hearts would be fully open to receive, and God, you would do something extraordinary in our midst. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much. Thank you. Good morning. It is really refreshing and great to be with you here today. This, this church is refreshing to Cynthia and I. It's a prophetic voice uh, in the middle of a lot of other voices, <laughs> say, and it's refreshing. Thank you so much for inviting me to be here. Today I'm going to go over a few things uh, regarding spiritual warfare with you. I'm going to begin by reading a familiar verse from Ephesians chapter 6. <clears throat> is it working here? For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. <clears throat> spiritual warfare may be a subject uh, that you may or may not think of often. Different streams of the body of Christ, different denominations, churches, differ in their level of interest in the subject, the degree they study it, and their understanding of the role that spiritual warfare plays in their life. On one end of the spectrum, some people may view everything through that lens in an exaggerated, unbalanced way, as they say, looking for a demon behind every bush. And on another end of the spectrum, some people may largely ignore it. It's not even on the radar. Both ends of the spectrum, as you know, are unbalanced and unbiblical. And it is helpful to our walk with Christ to have a solid biblical understanding of the subject. It is easy not to be aware, to forget about the spirit world and spiritual warfare, because we live in the tangible world that encroaches at times, most of the time actually, for us to be aware of the spirit world and spiritual warfare. A.W. Tozer eloquently put it like this. The world of sense <clears throat> intrudes upon our attention day and night for the whole of our lifetime. It is clamorous, insistent, and self-demonstrating. It does not appeal to our faith, it is here, assaulting our five senses, demanding to be accepted as real 
and final. This is from his classic, The Pursuit of God. Nevertheless, spiritual warfare is a reality, as we just read in Ephesians, and the scripture teaches us that there are demonic entities, spiritual forces of darkness that we wrestle with. They're called principalities, powers, rulers of darkness of this age. <clears throat> the scripture has a lot to say about the spirit world and spiritual warfare because the Holy Spirit saw to it when he breathed on the men who wrote the Bible that this is something important for us to know. So these passages are not written in the Bible sort of FYI, just so you know, you don't need to do anything about it. They are written so that we know them because it's critical to know them. So, oops. Um, where is this now? So what do the scriptures say about spiritual warf warfare? Broadly speaking, there are three things. First of all, it tells us that there is a conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness that takes place in the spirit world. We get a glimpse of that conflict in Daniel chapter 10. <clears throat> when Daniel, an angel, appeared to him and said this, and he said to me, do not be afraid, Daniel, from for the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard. And I have come because of your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia, that is a demonic entity, withstood me 21 days. And behold, Michael, that's an angelic being, one of the chief princes, come to help, came to help me. For I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. Now, not only does this scripture demonstrates to us the conflict that takes place in the spirit world, it also demonstrates the role of prayer. When Daniel prayed, when we pray, we set off things in the spirit world that eventually express themselves in the physical world. Another glimpse of this war that takes place in the spirit world is found in Revelation chapter 12. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail. The second thing that the scripture teaches about spiritual warfare is that not only does this <clears throat> conflict takes place in the spirit world, it expresses itself in the physical world that we live in on two fronts. First, individually, as we just read in Ephesians, we wrestle with the enemy who tries to derail our walk with Christ. It is very important for us to understand that we have an enemy that tries to derail our walk with Christ, and therefore, the scripture exhorts us to be sober, vigilant, because our enemy is like a roaring lion trying to devour us. Amen? Not only does this conflict take place on an individual level, but on a larger scale as well. Many of, the, many of the events that have taken place in history, not all the events, but many of the events that take place in history and currently takes place are an expression 
of that conflict that takes place in the spirit world. For example, Jesus talked about the, the devil being a murderer from the beginning. When we think of evil people in history, historical events, people like Mao Zedong in China, Hitler, G Germany, Lenin, Stalin, and now ISIS of the Islamic State that murdered millions of people, we, Jesus is telling us that behind these figures is a murder from the beginning. So not all historical events are merely the result of economic or political or military forces or powers or dynamics. Some of these events are actually spiritual in nature. In fact, in, the, in, in Daniel chapter 10, it's not in the slide, but later on in verse 20, after discussing the prince of Persia, it says, and the prince of Greece will come. He was actually referring to the conqueror of the Persian Empire by Alexander the Great. So these historical events, we get a glimpse into what's happened in the spirit world that express themselves in the physical world. The third broad thing that the scripture teaches, it gives us specific insights into the tactics of the enemy and specific insights on how to overcome them. And again, these passages were written because we need to know them. And this is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. The word devices means strategies or schemes. The Lord does not want you and me to be ignorant of the enemy's strategies. He wants us to be alert. And this is why Paul exhorts us to put on the whole armor of God that we may be able to withstand the wiles of the devil. The word wiles means tricks. To give you an analogy, Um, Time magazine reported last year that the FBI became aware of the Chinese government's efforts to recruit American students studying in China as spies. So they produced a short video movie which was a reenactment of a true story of one of those American students who was successfully recruited as a spy got caught early on by the FBI and uh, produced that, put that movie on social media and on the FBI website. The purpose of that movie was to alert the American students of the Chinese government's tactics, strategies that they use to recruit those American students so they wouldn't fall prey to them. And this is sort of the idea of why these passages are there. We need to be aware of the enemy's tactics. The scripture gives us insight through a number of things, oh, in, into this spiritual warfare through number one, Satan's encounter with Adam in the garden, Satan's encounter with Jesus in the wilderness, the wicked ways of the enemies of Israel in the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, the physical enemies of Israel and the conflict between enemies, uh, Israel and her enemies, is symbolic of spiritual warfare in the New Testament. So figures like Pharaoh, Goliath, Haman, gives us insight into the enemy's tactics. And <clears throat> finally, 
direct teachings in the scripture describing Satan's names, nature, and work. For example, tempter, accuser, murderer, deceiver, etc. Let's look at 10 of the strategies that the scripture teaches about regarding spiritual warfare. Three of the fronts that the enemy attack us are found in 1 John chapter 2. The lust of the flesh, the uh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The first tragedy <clears throat> is he lies to us about the goodness of God. He came to Eve and said, For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God. In other words, the essence of this temptation is God is keeping something good from you. God does not have your best interest in mind. If you obey God and do not eat of that tree, you will miss out on something. An attack on the goodness of God is one of the primary strategies that the enemy uses towards us because when we have a distorted image of God, we run away from him instead of running towards him. In his classic Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer in the introduction says, it is very important that our understanding of God is accurate according to what God discloses about himself. Because when we have a distorted image of God, our whole walk with God is going to be off. And we see that clearly in the parable that Jesus gave, of the parable of the talents that Jesus gave in Matthew 25. So in Matthew chapter 25, the man that failed his assignment, he first had a distorted image of his master, so he responded wrongly to him. As we read here, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. The second aspect of this is the dynamic that plays upon us is that the fear of missing out on various things the world has to offer is a primary driving force that leads us to sin and actually miss out on what God has for us. This is what he said to Eve. If you eat of that tree, you will be like God. Therefore, you're missing out on something if you obey God. The fact is that the word of God and our own experience tells us, our own testimony and the testimony of those around us tells us that obeying God, the law of God is good and refreshing to the soul. Our own testimony is not that sin is refreshing to the soul, but that the law of God is good and following God is refreshing to the soul. And this is why uh, God tells Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 10, keep my commandments for your own good. The second strategy that the enemy uses is he tempts us through the lust of the flesh. The first temptation of Christ if you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. There are two components to this temptation. First of all, an appeal to our physical appetites. 
because Jesus was hungry. And the reason the enemy appeals to our physical appetites is as we understand from Galatians that the flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And when we pamper the flesh, when we excessively feed the flesh, it dulls our spirit, it dulls our sensitivity to the Holy Spirit, and when we indulge excessively, it even quenches the Holy Spirit. And therefore, that's why Paul says in Galatians, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And this is why Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection. In the classic evangelical writings, in the old writings of people like A.W. Tozer, Bonhoeffer, Charles Spurgeon, Oswald Chambers, you'd find that theme quite you know, common in these writings. Unfortunately, in the contemporary evangelical writings, that theme is missing. It's unfortunate because it's part of the gospel and it's very important to our walk with Christ. The second aspect of this, it reminds us that fasting is a spiritual weapon. It's very interesting that the early church fathers taught that there is a connection between gluttony and lust. And this is biblical because you can read a lot of verses in the scripture about gluttony. And this reminds us of the spiritual power of the weapon of fasting. Jesus said, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. The second aspect of this is he lies to us about God's love and care for us. Because when Jesus was hungry, he basically, Satan is telling him, take matters into your own hands. You are left alone. Turn these stones into bread. However, Jesus' response was, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Father. In other words, the Father will sustain me. And this is in contrast of the same test that the Israelites had as they left Egypt in the wilderness when they were hungry. They failed that test. They grumbled against Moses and said, but you have brought us out of this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. So Israel's response was, God will not sustain us. Matthew Henry says of this, did I hear? No, this is too early. Matthew Henry says of this, he tempted Jesus to despair of his father's goodness and to distrust his father's care concerning him. It is one of the wiles of Satan to take advantage of our outward condition and those who are brought into straits, particularly when we're going through a hard time, the enemy whispers that God has left us alone, God has deserted us, have need to double their guard. The third strategy is he tempts us with pride of life. This is the second temptation of Jesus. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you. In other words, do something spectacular to exalt yourself. And the reason the enemy tempts us with pride, because pride is deadly. Pride precedes the fall. In, 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 as a matter of fact, <clears throat> he tempts Eve with the same thing in uh, Genesis chapter 3. He says, if you eat of this, you will be like God. 
Proverbs tells us that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. The story of the fall of Satan as formerly an angel uh, with God is recorded in Isaiah 14. And the reason uh, of his fall was pride. I will be like the Most High. Therefore, we are exhorted to embrace humility like Christ and refuse pride. Let this mind be in you with which, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. Therefore, God highly exalted him. We should not look to exalt ourselves. The fourth strategy is he tempts us with lust of the eyes. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall and worship me. We all know that the advertising industry is built upon lust of the eyes. It says, in fact, in, in Genesis, it says that the woman saw that the tree was good, looked good. And, uh, you know, with all the provocative images in the advertising industry, whether it's of food or anything else, it appeals to us. While the fact is, again, our own, the word of God and our own experience tells us that these things do not touch our hearts. God has put eternity in our hearts, and our own experience tells us that these things do not touch our hearts, do not satisfy us. I read a couple of books by uh, a guy back home uh, in the Middle East who came from a wealthy family, and then in his 20s, he experienced Christ, and the love of God burned in his heart, he left everything and went to dedicate his life to prayer uh, and communion with God. He became a monk, actually, in the Orthodox uh, Coptic tradition. And when asked by this, he had uh, a very powerful quote, actually. He said, the world is too bankrupt to offer me anything. Isn't that true? And uh, this is why the essence of what Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, whoever drink of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give will never thirst. The fifth thing we need to know is that he is the author of deception. The scripture teaches about deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. And uh, Revelation 12 describes the enemy as someone who deceives the whole world. It is very important to understand that deception is more than merely an ideology or a worldview or a different point of view. And Satan is the author of deception both in the church with false teachings, false doctrines that are unfortunately are very common these days and will increase as the scripture teaches towards the second coming of Christ and deception in the world with false gods and false religions. And it's important for us to, guide, to, uh, to guard our minds from deception. And one way I find helpful is to read the classics, to uh, read the orthodox writings, people like Tozer, Bonhoeffer, and so forth, because a lot of the contemporary uh, writings are good, but 
more often, a lot of them depart from orthodoxy. The sixth strategy is the scripture describes him as the accuser of the brethren. In Revelation chapter 12, it says that Satan is the accuser of the brethren who accuses the saints day and night before God. And we know from the book of Job that he almost you know, incited God against Job. He said, oh, God, Job doesn't really like you. He just you know, like the things you give to him. And, uh, and uh, uh, also in uh, Zechariah chapter 3, we see a very clear picture of this. It says, and he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him, to resist him to accuse him, so to speak. And as you know, we need to distinguish between the conviction of the Holy Spirit that has an overall tone of hope that leads us towards God and the accusations of the enemy that has an overall tone of despondency and leads us to a downward spiral away from God. And we need to remember when we are attacked by uh, the enemy of this, the Lord's word concerning this. In fact, in the example of Zechariah, the Lord's response was, and the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? This is a very interesting phrase. Brand plucked from the fire, if you study it, actually means this one belongs to me. That's what it means. And again in Romans, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. The seventh strategy, or something to be aware of, is that he attacks us when we are vulnerable. It was after 40 days when Jesus was hungry that he came to him and said, uh, he said, if these, turn these stones into bread. And in 1 Kings, we see a story about Elijah after he walked all day and he was tired, that the enemy came and attacked him with discouragement and depression to the extent that Elijah, a great prophet of God, says, I want to die. When we are too tired, too busy, or too overwhelmed, our resolve and resistance to temptation is not as strong. The enemy is described in Daniel as someone who wears out the saints of God. So we need to remember two things, to follow the example of Jesus, who often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. And we need to get regular times of rest and avoid being too busy. Sometimes one of the most spiritual things you can do is to take a nap, you know? <laughs> Praise God, yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, so uh, uh, we hear, hear an example in Mark 6, in the middle of very important ministry. The disciples are helping Jesus feed and minister to the 5,000. It says this, then because so many people were around, so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat. Jesus said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So this is, this is spiritual warfare. Next, 
He attacks us when we are excessively isolated or checked out. We know the story from 2 Samuel chapter 10 that the time when King David fell into sin was at a time where all the kings went to battle, but he stayed behind in the palace. And he was bored and walking around and, you know, and then in his boredom, an opportunity of sin presented itself to him and he fell. So we need to guard against excessive isolation. And this is why Hebrews tells us not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, but exhorting one another. Amen? Okay. Number nine, he attacks us through fear and intimidation and seeks to silence the word of God. Fear could be like a normal emotion, you know, a normal worry, but sometimes irrational fear could have a demonic aspect to it. There could be sometimes a spirit of fear that is spiritual warfare. In fact, the slide is not here, but in 1 Samuel chapter 27, King David said, Surely one of these days I will perish at the hand of Saul. But this is not what happened. What actually happened was Saul perished and David was established. But he at the time was attacked by fear. So we see also in Goliath, daily for 40 days, every day he intimidated the Israelites and says, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. And he told David, I will give your flesh to, um, I will give your flesh to the birds of the air. The second part about seeks to silence the word of God, specifically the prophetic voice of the church. As you know, Herod beheaded John the Baptist because he told him, it is not lawful for you to take your brother's wife. Today, the enemy seeks to silence the prophetic word of the church, and today's tactic is political correctness. The enemy tries to muzzle the voice of the church through political correctness, and that is something that is increasing in intensity. The tenth strategy is he often incites others against God's people. We know that Jesus said, if they hated you, they will hate me. And uh, we see here in Acts and Silas, and Paul and Silas, when they were bringing the word of God, the people took them and incited the authorities against them. We see the same story in Esther where Haman incited the king against Israel. And we, the need, we need to know this because we don't need to be astonished and shocked when we face persecution and hostility. We need to know that we've been told that this is coming. We need to resist this in prayer and respond to it in prayer to the Lord. Next, we're going to look into the spiritual weapons that the scripture teaches about from the familiar um, passage of Ephesians chapter 6. We are assured in Luke that God has given us all authority to trample upon all the power of the enemy and that our weapons are mighty in God. First weapon is, Ephesians chapter 6, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. The first thing is to realize that we do not 
resist the enemy in our own power. We only resist the enemy in the power of the Holy Spirit, on imported strength from the Holy Spirit. And this is very, very important. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Without me, you can do nothing. Abiding means walking with God, being consistently in the word and in prayer. Number two, gird your waist with truth. Really, the practical application of, of knowing the truth is knowing the Bible, knowing the Word of God. need to know the Word of God, Old Testament and New Testament, like the back of our hands. We need to know God's ways with man. We need to understand the character of God, who he says, who he is, and so forth. This way, when we are attacked by different strategies and lies, we know them for what they are. This is why Jesus said, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And he says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Next number. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness has two sides to it, two meanings. The first is to be grounded and established in the core message of the gospel, which is we come to the Father not in our own righteousness, but by the work of the cross. This is the first aspect of it. Not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through Christ Jesus. But the second aspect of this is to actually walk the walk. To walk in righteousness is part of the breastplate of righteousness. As it says here in 1 John, let no one deceive you. This is very, very important because there's a lot of teaching about this in our contemporary evangelical world. Let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as Jesus is righteous. And again in 1 John chapter 2, if you know that he, Jesus, is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. It's very clear in the scripture that sin opens the door to the enemy to attack us. That's why Jesus said, for the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me, meaning he has no entry door to me. A very interesting story about that uh, reveals this is found in Numbers 31 and Jesus quotes this in Revelation chapter 2. It's a story of Balaam uh, uh, you know, and, and Israel. So he, he, the story goes like this. Israel had enemies called the Moabites, and the Moabites had a king, his name is Balak. So King Balak wanted to defeat the Israelites, so he hired Balaam, who was a diviner, a sorcerer, a guy who dabbles in witchcraft, to place a curse on Israel. So Balaam tried to place a curse on Israel, and it didn't work. So he went back to King Balak and said, I cannot curse what God has blessed because Israel was under the hedge of protection of God. And he went and thought about it for a while and went back to him because he wanted the money. He said, but I know how you can defeat them. You can get them to remove themselves from under the hedge of protection by God by get them to fall into sin. So he advised the king, King Balak, 
to send his people to seduce Israel into sexual immorality and uh, eating the food that was uh, sacrificed to idols. And therefore, uh, they did that and succeeded and plague broke into Israel and they were defeated. Jesus quotes this in Revelation 2 saying this. He kept, this is about Balaam, he kept teaching Balak, the king of the Moabites, to put a stumbling block before children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Another clear place that this is uh, found in the, in the scriptures is in the book of Judges. As you know, in the first few chapters, there is this cycle of Israel's victory and defeat. It reads like this numerous times. So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Therefore, the anger of the Lord rose against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies, their different enemies, the first few chapters. When the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the children of Israel who delivered them. Here's a very interesting verse in Proverbs. Like a city that is broken and without walls is a person who lacks self-control. What does that mean? In the ancient world, the wall around the city is the wall that protects the city. Like the wall of Jerusalem, the wall of Jericho, and so forth. So what this means is, if someone easily falls into temptation, does not resist sin, he removes himself from the hedge of protection around the wall of protection around him, and he becomes vulnerable to the attacks of the enemy. Number four, having shod, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Some people view this as related to First Peter, as this is an offensive weapon of evangelism. So John Piper believes, this is too long to read, but John Piper interprets this verse as evangelism actually is spiritual warfare. Reinhard Bonnke always says that, uh, as well says this. Evangelism is spiritual warfare. The world is occupied territory in rebel hands. The whole world was under satanic rule. But when Christ came, the forces of the kingdom of God began to assert themselves. For the first time, demons were expelled by order as a sign of the kingdom authority in Christ. Why is evangelism spiritual warfare? Because when you go to Harvard Square to do your reach out, and you plant seeds of pre-evangelism and evangelism, this is what you're doing according to Acts. You are turning people from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, when you lead someone to repentance, what you're doing is you are helping him escape the snare of the devil. Next number. <clears throat> Above all, number five. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one. Simply put, faith is trust in the character and the promises of God. It is relating to God as a trustworthy person. Maybe at work or in your school, you have some people that you deem trustworthy and some people that you deem not. 
faith is relating to God as a trustworthy person. And uh, <clears throat> this is the shield, the shield that is able to uh, uh, quench the fiery darts of the enemy. And the fiery darts could be something like uh, a trial, some hard time you're going through, some thoughts, like we said earlier, thoughts of fear or the enemy's accusations and so forth. And by responding to that in trust in the character and promise of God, you can say things like, the Lord is good and his mercy endures forever. Or the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Finally, and, uh, and take on the helmet, not finally actually, this is one after that, and take on the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation is a very specific weapon and has to do with to look to the eternal, not the temporal. To have a stance of fixing our eyes on the eternal, not the temporal. This comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. That's the hope of eternal life. The hope of eternal life is very important, specifically in times of persecution and difficulty. And this is why Jesus says in Revelation chapter 2, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. That's the helmet of salvation. When you think of the recent 21 Coptic martyrs that were beheaded on the beach of Libya, they were all over social media, I'm sure you've seen them. What do you think sustained them as they were offered either deny Christ or be beheaded? What do you think sustained them to be beheaded? It's the helmet of salvation. It's their hope for eternal life. Persecution is coming to this land. It has already begun, but we're just warming up. I mean, it's like we're marginalizing the society and so forth. But Jesus says that persecution will come to his church. And persecution will come to this land. And we need to have a stance, a general stance, to look to the eternal and not to the temporal. Next number. And this is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. As you know, Jesus responded, it is written every time he responded to the temptations of uh, Satan. There is a supernatural power in the word of God. As Jesus quoted it, Satan fled. Tozer has an article entitled, I talk back to the devil. It's actually found online. It is important for us to saturate our mind with the word of God and actually quote it and strengthen ourselves. David did this in the Psalms. Many of the Psalms, David begins the Psalms by being anxious, being troubled, and as the Psalm continues, he strengthens himself in the Lord, remembers and quotes God's word to himself. Is this? Yes. This Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. 
being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. As we saw in the passage that we read in Daniel, a very interesting phrase is, I have come because of your words. It's very, very interesting that the Lord acts as we pray. So as you guys do your prayer sets, I can't believe you have six prayer sets a week. Uh, it's amazing, actually. As you, as you pray in your prayer sets, the Lord moves on your behalf to restrain darkness over this region and to release his light and to release his power over this land. Jesus promised us that he will give us the keys to the kingdom of heaven and whatever we bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever we loose on earth will be loose in heaven. When we think of Jeremiah chapter 1, God tells Jeremiah something very interesting. He says, I have set you today, appointed you over nations to root out and pull down, to build and to plant. How did Jeremiah do that? Did he have an army to accomplish his assignment? Jeremiah prophesied over these nations. You find that in the last few chapters of Jeremiah. Meaning he declared, he prayed the will of God over these nations. And as he did, God raised kingdoms and put down kingdoms. Amen? So I'm going to summarize. If you, the worship team would like to come in, I'm going to summarize and then we'll close in prayer. The worship team would like to come up. So I'm going to summarize what we said today and then we're going to close in prayer. Number one, be sober and aware that spiritual warfare exists. Number two, remember that God is good all the time. Refuse the lie that he isn't. Number three, remember that God's law is good. Resist temptations of the flesh. Number four, embrace humility like Christ. Refuse pride. Number five, remember that the world is too bankrupt to offer you anything. You were made for the eternal. Refuse the lust of the eyes. Number six, be grounded in God's word and beware of the gradual creeping of deception in your mind. Number seven, be quick to repent when you sin. Do not give a door to the enemy. Number eight, when you repent, refuse the accusations of the enemy. Number nine, avoid isolation and being too busy. Get both regular times alone with God and regular times of fellowship in the church. Number 10, fasting strengthens our spirits and our ability to subject our flesh. Please stand with me and let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your relentless pursuit of us. Thank you because we are called by your name. Thank you for your love, forgiveness, power, promise to sustain us. Oh, Lord, draw us more and more and we will run after you. Lord, we commit ourselves to you. We worship you. We love you. We want to give you our all. In Jesus' name, amen.